Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 11 through 17. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young flock and of the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice and dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children, because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. This is the word of the Lord. Our epistle reading this morning comes from Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you know you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning, the Holy Gospel comes from uh, St. Matthew, the second chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. (laughs) Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Achelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. That was that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Why is Herod like this? Uh, he, he is, you know, I mean, you, you could toss him off as insane. I, I guess it's possible that he's criminally insane. He's literally a genius. He is, Herod is famous. The, the most famous thing Herod is, there's two things Herod is famous for in the ancient world. And Herod is way, Herod is one of the most, most written about characters outside of the New Testament. And one of the most famous things he's famous for is architectural genius. The guy is absolutely stone cold brilliant. And uh, that's, that's recognized today by architects. He's also famous for this, this murderous streak. Like, so when he died, on his deathbed, he's about to die, he commands that one member of every family in the province of Judea be executed on the day of his death so that there will be true mourning throughout the land on the day of his death. Now, that, that didn't get passed. Like, thankfully, that, that, that didn't actually happen. But he wanted it to happen. He wanted it to happen. Why is he like this? Why is it that when he finds out 
this news from the wise men that there's this, this Messiah, this future king, that he's so intent on killing this future king, even though the king's a baby, that he's going to slaughter all the kids in the town. And the answer, of course, is that he's afraid, right? He's afraid to lose power. The, the, the most precious thing to Herod is his political power. He worked hard to get his political power. He made the right decision prior to the Battle of Actium, where he was given a choice between, do I fight for my friend Octavius or do I fight for my friend Mark Antony? And he chose the right one. He chose Octavius. And he's not about to let the reward that he received for that choice pass away from him. He is going to be the king of Judea, and nothing's going to stand in his way. He's afraid to lose his power. That's why he's so murderous. This is what fear does, right? Fear fear exposes your idols. You are going to be afraid of the thing that you're desperate not to lose. You're going to be afraid of the thing that you're desperate not, not to lose. And it's, it's, you know, for, for some people, it's, it's uh, a big stuff, like power. Well, actually, for, for a lot of us, it's power. But, um, you know, it could be money. If you're afraid, like if the most important thing to you in your life is money and the fear of not having money or losing the money you've got, you're going to end up making choices that aren't good in order to get money. Like if, you're, if the thing that you're most afraid of in life is being alone, you're going to end up making choices that aren't good. You're going to end up being with people that you shouldn't be with, being with someone that you shouldn't be with just because you don't want to be alone. Or you'll be with the people that you should be with, but you'll be so desperate to control them, to, to, to keep them in your life. This is what fear does to us. Fear exposes our idols. And it could, like for Herod, it's power, right? For a lot of us, it's power. Interesting thing about Herod is that Herod is like a contemporary man 2,000 years ago. Herod loves power so much. And for Herod, the truth is just a tool to get that power or to maintain that power. This is, this super, this, this interests me a lot about Herod. He's incredibly postmodern. Look what it says in verse 16. So Herod, he's scared. Herod is scared because he does not want to lose his power to this new Messiah, this new king. And so he finds out where and when they are from the wise men. Right? In verse 16, according to the time that, that he had ascertained from the wise men. If you go back to verses 3 through 5 of Matthew 2, he actually tells his religious leaders, when he finds out about the new Messiah from the wise men, he tells his religious leaders, look in the Bible and find out where the new Messiah is going to be. Look, it's not that, it's not that Herod is a disbeliever in, in the logical sense. Like, Herod believes the Bible. He believes the Bible enough to know that if the Bible says the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, that's where I should go to kill him. Right? But for, for Herod, truth, it's like something you can like take or leave. You can stick it in your pocket if you need it. If not, you can leave it at home. It's something that he's going to use in order to get and to maintain power. I, I say that's contemporary because this is like this is the world that we live in, right? So Nietzsche saw this a long time ago. If you ever read, uh, which you, of course you haven't, and you probably shouldn't, it's not easy to read. But if you ever read, if you ever read Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil, or if you've ever read his book Will to Power, he makes this point. Nietzsche talks a lot about master versus slave morality. So there's a, there's there's truth in the world. You know, some of us believe that there's truth in the world, and there's a slave morality. You can ha- you can access that truth via slave morality. Slave morality is this: you are basically owned by a set of laws or by a God who's in charge of you, and you have to do what that God says 
or what that group of laws says. This is all religions basically work on a slave morality principle. You don't have a voice. You have to blindly obey these rules. Well, Nietzsche says, if there's no such thing as God, that that means that there is no, there's no more slave morality. All there is is master morality. Now, here's what master morality is. Master morality is this. You decide what's going to be good or evil, and you enforce that in your own life, and if you're strong enough, you can enforce that in other people's lives too. I'm going to read you to a little bit from Beyond Good and Evil. Nietzsche says this, within the master morality concept, people will appear to treat each other as equals, because that's what you have to do. You have to be nice. You have to play like we're all on the same page here. But the strong ones will have to be an incarnate will to power. You, you, if you're going to be a strong person, you have to be power embodied. Your, your main goal in life is control. Your main goal in life is to be like Herod. Right? Power. And, and the truth is not of consequence except as it's a tool to you using power over yourself and other people. Here's what he says. This power is going to strive to grow, spread, seize, and become predominant. Check this out. Not from any morality or immorality. This has nothing to do with right or wrong. It has nothing to do with moral or immoral. But because it is living and because life simply is a will to power. There's no such thing as morality or immorality. All there is is strength and power. Well, so then why do we use words like good and evil? Here's what Nietzsche says. This is a quote right after this. Uh, what is evil then? Evil is whatever springs from weakness. There's the strong and there's the weak. And the strong is good and the weak is evil. And we have to readjust our language of morality so that it matches not some sort of like slave notion of a God who tells us what to do, but whatever you can impose on the large, the, 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 the extent that you can impose that power. Right? All things, and because of this, this will sound like Herod here, because of this all things are subject to interpretation. Whichever interpretation prevails at a given time is a function, direct quote from Nietzsche, is a function of power and not truth. So like you're going to interpret a circumstance. There's a baby that's born in your district, and somebody told you that that baby claims to be a king. What's true or not? Maybe that's, maybe the people just made the story up, right? Maybe it's false. Maybe it's true. Let's look in the Bible and see if it's true or not. But that, whether it's true or not is pointless. At the end of the day, the only thing that matters is power. And any sort of claims to your own personal power have to be squelched. And so, so some of you who I've talked about this with, you know I'm going to do this. This is like once a year I have to do this. So this is like at the end of the first uh, Harry Potter book, right, where, uh, where the bad guy, Voldemort, is he wants to get the, the thing from Harry that Harry has, and he's trying to convince Harry, give me this. And, and Voldemort says to Harry, this is a quote direct out of Nietzsche almost, like, so, so look, Harry, it was it. first of all, he says, if you give me that, you and I can rule the world. He's appealing to his sense of power. And when he says that, he, really, he can see that Harry is struggling with, maybe this won't be a good thing to give the most evil person in the universe access to this power. And so Voldemort pulls this line right out of Nietzsche. There's no such thing as good or evil. There's only power, and those too weak to seek it. And the, and the reason why that resonates, and the reason why... Voldemort doesn't come across as just a merely flat character is because there are people like King Herod's in the world. There are people like Adolf Hitler's in the world for whom there is no morality, there's only power. There are people like Aaron Miller's in the world. Now, let me tell you this. The only thing that separates me from Voldemort or from Adolf Hitler or from King Herod is that I don't have an army or magical powers. And I'm actually kind of weak-willed when it comes right down to it. But honestly, I want power, 
and you want power too. I tell you, this is super common when I do marriage counseling, is to have to stop the conversation at some point because it's degenerated into not a search for like common ground or not even a quest for who's right or who's wrong in the conversation, but let's stop and just for a few minutes try to be on each other's side. Because both parties have determined that I don't even care how this ends today. I'm going to prove that that conversation that we had like that last year happened the way that I remembered it and not the way you remembered it. So you have a roommate and, you know, you have a disagreement over, you have a roommate and you're frustrated with the roommate because, you know, it's, it's summertime and the AC's on and they leave the window open. And so, you, you know, you can throw out all these facts about, you know, BTUs and uh, the, the environment and, and the electric bill going up when the AC's on and the windows are open. But that conversation will always devolve into, I'm determined the way I want this room to work is going to be the way it works and not the way that you want it to work. Every relationship is like that because we are all King Herods at heart. Right? So I did, this week, so I bought, some of you know about this, I bought Angela a Christmas present and I, I bought it from this uh, gallery and I had it mailed here to the church because I didn't want her finding it when it got home. And I got a notification uh, the Saturday before Christmas that it arrived and we were kind of a distance away with her family. And when we came back, I came up to the church and it was gone. There wasn't anything in the mailbox. And so I went to the post office uh, the next week. I went to the post office three times. And the person at the counter said, basically, okay, yeah, I'll check on it and I'll call you back. And you need to leave now because the lines are long before Christmas. And that wasn't the, actually the words they used. But I could see it in their eyes if they wanted me to leave. And so... And then they didn't call me back. So I went back the next day that it was open, and same thing. We'll call you, we'll check into it. I'll call you right back this afternoon. And didn't call me back. And so, so at, you know, at, at some point, it, it stops being about the present, which I, I got. So the, the artist emailed me and said, I'll do another one for half price. So it wasn't about the money or anything like that. It was about, I'm going to make the people at the post office pay for treating me like junk. I'm going to be right about this. And honestly, look, so I don't have an army, but if I had an army, it would be surrounding the post office. And I'm not, I'm totally not trying to be flippant. I, in my mind, wanted bad things to happen to them. And it wasn't just because of the inefficiency. It wasn't because I was going to tell Angela on Christmas morning, you got a present, but it's not here and I don't know where it is. It wasn't anything like that. It was that I was going to win that battle. I was going to be right. And they were going to be wrong. That's... That's my fear of losing power makes me wish evil on the post office. It's my, my fear exposes my idolatry. Like, I, I'm King Herod all over again. Right? So what, so, uh, what, what are we going to do with this? There's a couple things here to point out real quick. This is all surface stuff. Just prequel, just, this is all prequel to like the solution. But for, first of all, all the things that you're afraid of losing, uh, and let's keep on talking about power right now just because that's where Herod's at, and, and me too. All the things that you're afraid of losing, there's no way that you can satisfy that, right? The desire for the post office to do my bidding, well, even if I can get that satisfied, my new desire is going to be uh, for, for the furnace maintenance person to do my bidding, and then for the lawn person to do my bidding, and then for you guys to do my bidding. That, that desire to be in control is insatiable. It's a desperately hungry beast that can never be satisfied. It's a, this huge, like, God-shaped hole in my heart that I can throw little power experiences into. 
but it's never going to be satisfied. That's the first thing, is that it actually, whatever it is, it could be your lust for money, or your lust for sex, or your lust for, you know, relationship, or your, you know, lust for physical comfort, your lust for a sense of belonging, that can never, that's just a, that's just a beast that can never be satisfied. First thing. Second thing, it, it will not end well. It's a remarkably ironic part of this story. It's so, you know, it describes Herod murderously killing all these babies. Verse 18, that's the part about Rachel weeping for her children. In verse 19, here, read, read the first line of verse 19 this way. So all the ba- Herod kills all these babies, verse 19. But when Herod died, so, you know, Herod is so desperate for power that he's going to murder his kids, his wife, babies he doesn't even know. But eventually Herod is going to die. Now, you don't know this, but if you're in the first century and you're reading Matthew for the first time, whether you're a Jew or whether you're living in France, you would know the story of Herod's death. It was horrible. Josephus tells us that he had some sort of necrotic, putrefying body decomposition thing that was super, like his body was literally rotting while he was alive. He tried to commit suicide twice by stabbing himself. And one of his aides stopped him. That's what happens to your power. I can get the post office to do what I want them to do, but eventually nobody's going to do what I want them to do because I'm going to die. Or so that's, that's just surface stuff. That doesn't really help you. Just a little warning, like the things that you're afraid of, don't let them have control over you because even if you could get control over them, they're not going to pay out. What are we going to do, though, like to actually solve the real problem? I don't want us just to feel better about this or to like, just calm down and relax and breathe deep and let, let, the, let, just let things go. I don't want to be like that. I want the gospel to actually fix this problem in our hearts. So what are we going to do? Now, we don't usually do this, but I would like to look at the psalm reading for this morning. We don't hardly ever do this, but the psalm for this Sunday is Psalm 111. And if we can look over there, let me point out a few things about this psalm to you. Psalm 111, it's like this magnificent retelling. It's like bullet point retelling of all the good things that God has done. Big picture stuff. I'm not talking about, like, you know, our homes and our clothes and our friends. Like, that's super important. But the big picture stuff that stands behind all of that. So look at uh, the, look at the second verse. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work. This is all, this is creation language, right? God creates the world as beautiful. People study it and they fall in love with it. Believers and unbelievers fall in love with the beauty of God's creation. His righteousness endures forever. Next verse is about redemption. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Next verse is about providence. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. The next verse is about the new creation, the longing for God to make all things new and to bring all people that belong to him into one body. He has shown his people the power of his works and giving them the inheritance of the nations. God's people are one day going to rule over the inheritance of the nations. It goes on. Very last verse, he has sent redemption to, second to last verse, he sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome. Now, check this out. Very last verse. Weird way to end this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. The fear of the Lord is, so why would he talk about God's, like, master plan to rewrite the story of the broken world into a story of salvation? And he would end with, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What does that mean? What it means is this. The difference between Herod, who was a slave to his own fears of losing power, and the wise men who bow down in worship is the fear of the Lord. Who are you afraid of? Who are you afraid of? Are you afraid of of losing the things that you worship, like money and power and health 
and sex and friends and family. All good, all good things. Or are you afraid of the Creator God who created the whole world? And when it was taken away from him, came up with this unbelievably powerful plan to, to uh, recollect it for himself and make it all new. So, well, let's just talk real quick about what does it mean to be afraid of. So what does it mean to be afraid of? It's going to look like the, the wise men, right? When, when the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, it doesn't talk about like horror, like we're horrified by him, or we're scared he's going to blow us up. It also doesn't mean, like when I was a kid, I was told, like I've heard a ton of times in sermons, when you see the fear of the Lord talked about in the Bible, it, just, it means like respect. Respect the Lord. It, you should respect the Lord, of course. It doesn't just mean respect the Lord. It actually means fear. It's the fear of coming in contact with the transcendent. So uh, baseball nerd stuff. Some of you know who Wade Boggs is. He's a fantastic hitter for the Red Sox and the Yankees back in the 80s and 90s. He was a minor leaguer for the Red Sox, and he was coming up. If you know anything about baseball history, maybe the greatest hitter of all time was a Red Sox hitter who had retired about 20 years before, Ted Williams. And uh, Wade Boggs was at spring training, and he, was at, he and some friends were going to go to a movie. And he was in line to get tickets for this movie, and he says he realized that Ted Williams was like three people behind him. And so he told his friends, I've got to do this. And so he turned around and went back and introduced himself. And he said Ted Williams immediately started talking about hitting and like, what's your hitting style? Show me your stance and what do you look, and all those sorts of things. But he's describing, he, when he's telling the story, he's like, I'm knock-kneed. Like, I can't even hardly catch my breath. I'm so in awe of this man's presence. And he, and he said, I can understand how pitchers felt the same way around him. All right, that's, that's closer to what we're talking about when we're talking about the fear of the Lord. Coming into contact with somebody so big and so powerful that you yourself, who thought that you were the coolest guy on the team a few minutes ago, realizes I'm small and I'm nothing. Some of you, some of you know this story, so I'll give you another example. Uh, I've told some of you this. So a few years ago, when uh, Angela and the kids and I, uh, we drove out to see my sister in Long Beach, and we stopped at the Grand Canyon because none of us had ever been there before. And, of course, it's stunningly beautiful, right? I mean, you go to the, the main entrance, and there's big, these big fences up, and that's all the tourists are there. But if you drive, like, five minutes around the south rim, there's nobody there, and there's no fences there. There's nothing there but just drop off thousands of feet and signs about every feet, 50 feet that say, be careful because you could die. But so people die here every year, right? So we're there, you know, and it's just, like, it's... I can't, like, it's the kind of thing that if I tell you it's beautiful, you're gonna, and you've never seen it, you'll be like, okay, yeah, I've seen pictures. It's, it's, it's quite pretty. And no, you just don't get it. It's unbelievably beautiful. Angela's primary emotion on that day was, everybody sit down and don't move. Like, do, do not, you, Harry, sit down right there. Do not get any closer. Like, she was horrified. And it's truly horrifying because you know, like, one wrong step and this thing will kill me. The Grand Canyon is the closest thing that I have to being able to comprehend what love and amazement, like just overwhelming sense of the transcendent, mixed with the fear of if I, if I screw with this thing, I could die. That's what we're talking about here. That, that's what the wise men are experiencing. They've bowed down, they've bowed down in front of this one who they know have created them. Because that's all you can do. There's this theme in the first couple chapters of Luke of like falling down on your face because you're scared. Zachariah does it. Mary does it. Joseph does it here in Matthew. Right. The shepherds do it when the angels show up. 
There's this theme of like legit fear, the fear of the Lord. Now, how, so how is the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom? Because it recognizes that this power is bigger than my power, and it refuses to insist that my power is going to control this power. Now, let's just be frank with you. I talk with some of you about like your problems with Christianity, and you know, we, we can talk about like the problem of evil. We can talk about human origins and why that's a struggle for some of you to like, uh, compute that. But actually, for a lot of us, what it comes down to is we just don't want to let God have that control. It's not even about truth anymore. We can search the scriptures. We can ascertain from the wise men who Jesus is. But frankly, I want to be in charge, and I don't want him to be in charge. And a lot of times, that's our, what our problems with... For those of you who are believers, I'm talking to you too. Our problems with Christianity and Jesus is less about logic. It's less about scripture exposition. It's less about our devotional life. And it's more about, I don't want to lose my power. But by bowing down, by bowing down at the feet of the baby Jesus, we finally have access to what Psalm 111 is talking about. Salvation and creation. Let me just give you one more example of how this works from the text. Okay, so we have to do this. This is talking about the uh, martyr of the innocents. So this, this, uh, horribly brutal. Matthew quotes this uh, verse from Jeremiah that we read this morning. A vo- voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. There's this novel by, um, uh, by Albert Camus, the famous French philosopher and novelist called The Fall. And his main character in that novel, a guy by the name of uh, Jean-Baptiste Clements, argues in that novel that Jesus allows himself to be killed at the end of the Gospels because of his survivor guilt. Like He's the baby that makes it out of Bethlehem alive. And that he can't cope with that. And so at the end, he allows himself to be killed. Well, I I don't actually think that the text of the Bible bears that out. I don't think that's what's happening. But Camus' character is right in connecting this story with the death of Jesus. Now, watch how this happens. I want you to think about Matthew like you've never read it before. Okay, so here's the newborn Messiah. And you're reading Matthew 2. And then the innocents get killed. And you're super sad about that, right? Because that's sad. But the main character, the hero of the story, makes it out alive. And there's a little bit, if you're reading it legitimately, there's a little bit of like, that was a close one. The good guy survives. The bad political power who wants to rule the world isn't able to kill our hero. But this is just setting you up. Because in a few chapters, the bad political power. So Herod's just a lackey of Caesar, who's his boss his friend Augustus, right? Eventually, Augustus' successor, Tiberius, is going to do what Herod couldn't do. He's going to catch up with the the Messiah, and he's going to crush him. And so that's the end of the story. Another innocent person lost, right? Here's where the fear of the Lord comes in. Look back at Jeremiah 31 with me real quick. I don't know if you guys noticed this when Jared read this to us this morning. Jeremiah 31 this verse that we read that Matthew uses, I, so I, look, I don't have time to argue for this now because I don't have time to hardly say anything else here. But when, when you are, when you're reading a quote from the Old Testament and the New Testament, you should not read just that verse. It is your call to go back and read the whole text it came from because phrases from the New, from the Old Testament evoke entire passages. So we should go back to Jeremiah 31 where in verse 15, uh, the Lord says, a voice heard in Ramah lamentation and bitter weeping about Rachel weeping for her children because they're no more. But look at, look at the context that this is in. In Jeremiah 31, God is redeeming his people. 
Verse 11, for the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. And then if you keep on reading, there's these feasts with grain and wine and oil. There's women dancing and young men and old men being merry. There's mourning being turned into joy. There's feasting. And then there's this verse, Rachel weeping for her children because there are no more. And then God says, the very next verse, verse 16, Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your, your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. Check this out. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. The loss of the children is horrible. But the loss of the Messiah assures that they will come back again. The loss of the children without the loss of the Messiah assures that they're gone for good and feel free to weep. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't weep because loss is a painfully hard thing to do. Look, the loss of your idols... The loss of the things that you're afraid to lose is a horrible thing. But the loss of the Savior means this. You will get those back. You want pleasure? You want money? You want real power? Give it up to the one who gave it up himself. Because by giving it up himself, he got it all back and in spades, and he owns the whole universe now. And all the pleasure, and all the power, and all the money in the entire universe now belongs to you. Now and forever. Amen.